are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Good morning. Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bjorn. Great to have you with us for worship. I want to thank Heather for reading scripture for us this morning. And then we had Griffin before that, reading our children's Bible story. You know, great job, Griffin. Today, we shift into the climactic scene in Ruth chapter three. It is midnight on the threshing floor. I almost think that needs some background music as we say that. But just to make sure we're ready, I'm going to catch us up and make sure that we're all on the same page as we head into this momentous scene. In chapter one, everything starts out bitter. Chapter one is full of heartache as it begins with a family from Israel who's in the midst of a famine. So they move to Moab. But in Moab, the dad of the family, Elimelech, passes away. So then it's just the mom, Naomi, and her two boys And then some time passes, the boys grow up, each one finds a wife among the Moabite people. Then disaster strikes again because both of those grown sons, both of Naomi's boys, end up passing away as well. Just a lot of heartache in the first chapter. There's one word of comfort, though, that comes from Israel, and that is that the famine has passed. And so Naomi, in her grief, is now able to move home. So she sets out for Israel and says in that moment to her daughters-in-law that they should stay in Moab, that they should stay with their families and they can start fresh. One daughter-in-law does, 
But the other daughter-in-law insists that she will go with Naomi to Israel and never leave her side. And that daughter-in-law, of course, is Ruth. In chapter two, then, they're back in Israel. They're in Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. And Ruth goes out into the fields to glean, to pick leftover stalks of grain so that she and Naomi are going to have something to eat. And it just so happens, you'll remember that word from last week, it just so happens that Ruth goes to glean in the field of Boaz. Boaz is a relative of Naomi's. And Ruth is out there and Boaz arrives at his field and she finds favor in Boaz's eyes. And he shows great generosity and kindness to her. And Ruth is able to glean in Boaz's field for the duration of the harvest. And that's where we left off last week. Chapter three, as I said, is this crescendo of the story, of this love story. So this is the equivalent of Wesley revealing his identity to the princess bride. Remember, as he's tumbling down the hillside and he says, as you wish. It's the equivalent of Cinderella who shows up at the ball, but then loses her slipper when the clock strikes midnight. And that's the kind of scene that's before us. It's this big scene of the book, but it happens in such strange ways for you and I. Didn't you think that? I mean, maybe you've read this story before, so that shock effect is kind of worn off. But as Heather read this, didn't you think, this is so strange? I mean, here's a guy snoring next to a pile of grain, and then a girl who comes and uncovers his feet and lies down by his feet. I mean, I don't know what kind of dating advice you would give, but this all seems really rather odd. And yet with all seriousness, I want to remind us that the Bible says all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it's written by God for our benefit, it says, so that we may know him and live accordingly. There's no other book like this. God is revealing himself to us in every word, in every story, in every chapter, and that includes Ruth chapter 3. So this love story and all of its peculiarities is brimming with his purposes for us. And I believe that God will help us find it. That is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, to illuminate his word. And so as chapter 3 begins... Let's dive into the story now. The barley harvest has ended, and Naomi is concluding that she has got to find a long-term solution for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. You know, Ruth has been so faithful and so kind and so loyal, but Naomi knows there's no future for Ruth with her. Remember the world in which they lived. We pointed this out in the past. If you were a widow, you could just go pick up a job and get out there and make a living. You can draw on your life insurance or social security in that kind of case. Your social security was the men in your family. That is the world they lived in. That's the way it was. And so for Naomi to have lost her husband and both of her sons meant that she had nothing. That's why Ruth was out there gleaning. It was a step above begging, just trying to find enough to put a meal in their bellies for the day and to survive. Naomi says to her, she says, Ruth, my daughter, I have to find a home for you. And you see this tremendous affection really throughout the book that exists between this unlikely pair. 
a Jewish mother-in-law, and a Moabite daughter-in-law. I know not everyone has an easy relationship with their mother-in-law. That is true. But if you do, then what a treasure you have. What a joy to have that. I knew my mother-in-law was a keeper before she was ever actually my mother-in-law. Esther and I were engaged, and I'd been working at a Bible camp in Germany for that summer. It was a pretty rugged scenario. You know, we were sleeping outside on the ground, and we'd wake up in the morning just covered in dew or rain, whatever had come down. So anyway, through the summer, I developed severe tonsillitis, so bad that Esther and my mother-in-law took me to the hospital. And it was there in the exam room that they're poking around and trying to figure out what's going on in the back of my throat, that I start to pass out. My mother-in-law rushes toward me to keep me from collapsing on the ground, and I throw up all over her. I was just mortified. I mean, what do you say when you throw up all over somebody? You know, sorry, just didn't really seem to cut it. I just was beside myself. And yet she was so gracious and she still let me in the family. I have got a great mother-in-law and some of you have met her when they fly over and visit. She's come to church. So that's my mother-in-law. Ruth had a great mother-in-law. Naomi is looking out for her and had seen in chapter two, this golden opportunity that had come knocking that Boaz was a relative. Now at a few times in the message today, we're going to have to say something about these faraway customs that are so unfamiliar to us. You know, we're in a sense having to transport ourselves back from 21st century America to 1200 BC in the ancient Near East. It was a very different world. And one of the key differences was their emphasis on the group over the individual. And that's really quite the opposite from the culture that you and I live in. So the tribe, the clan, the extended family unit all took precedence over the individual person. And there were two practices that help to ensure the family line. And both of these are present in Ruth in some sense. The first was called the leveret marriage. And what it meant was if a man died and he died without a son, then his brother would marry his widow so that an heir could be produced for the family line and to pass along property. So very foreign to us. Just let me tell you, not at all foreign to them. It's made perfect sense. The other practice was that of the guardian redeemer. It came up for the first time in chapter two, and now it really will come to bear in chapter three. And this is why Ruth landing in Boaz's field to glean was so fortuitous. You know, Naomi was pointing that out in chapter two. She says, that man is a close relative of ours, and he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And that word that's used there is goel in Hebrew, the kinsman redeemer by law in Israel had certain duties to fulfill toward his relatives who came under hardship is the concept here. Key to this whole idea is what it meant to redeem something. It meant to pay a price in order to secure the release of something or someone. So it could be a field, it could be restitution, or it could be a family member who had come into debt or actually was enslaved. 
This sense of family solidarity was one of their highest values in their culture. So anything that disrupted or threatened the extended family had to be fixed, whether it was people or property, it just had to be fixed. And redemption is the way that that was done. Now that might for the moment just seem like random Bible background info, but there is something here for us very practically that will apply a little bit later. Now back to the story, Naomi had been thinking how Ruth had caught Boaz's eye out there gleaning in the field. And now, you know, nothing had materialized of that yet. So Naomi was going to move things along a little bit. You know, you got to smile to yourself reading about Naomi here, because isn't this just what mothers will do? Isn't that right? You know, I told the story last week about how Esther and I met you know, when I introduced Esther to my parents, we were just friends, you know, as soon as Esther's out of earshot, my mom is elbowing me saying, how about Esther? She's nice. She's cute. This is just a, a mom thing to do. You know, you don't mess with a mom and a plan. And Naomi has hatched a plan. So she tells Ruth, she says, you know, Boaz is going to be down at the threshing floor tonight. And so she says to her, why don't you take a bath, put on some of that nice perfume, and put on that dress that you haven't worn in such a long time. And then she says to Ruth, you're going to sneak down to the threshing floor, and then I want you to watch where Boaz lies down to sleep for the night. Now, I want to interject just a couple more details here that might be helpful in understanding what's going on. This event of winnowing barley on the threshing floor was the culmination of the harvest. So once the barley was cut and bundled, we talked about that last week, it would be carried or carted from the field to the threshing floor. The threshing floor was not like inside of a barn, but it was out in the open, an open space of bedrock or hard stamped earth. And then they put the stalks of barley or wheat down there on the ground and they would thresh it in a number of ways. So they would beat it with the sledge have it trampled by animals with hooves. They would crush it with the wheels of a cart that was loaded down. However they did it, the idea was this. Threshing meant to split the kernels out of the husks. And then once that was done, then came the winnowing. And that is what Boaz was there to do. Winnowing was the final step and it separated the kernels from the husks, really sorted them out. And they would use wind and gravity, essentially. I'll tell you how it worked. The winnower would come in the late afternoon. That's when they had a nice, steady breeze, that warm breeze coming up off the Mediterranean. And then the winnower would take a fork or a shovel and just repeatedly basically throw this mixture from the threshing floor up into the prevailing winds. And what would happen is that the husks and the chaff and all of that refuse would just get blown off to the side with the breeze. The kernels of grain, the good stuff, was heavier and would just fall into a nice, neat pile at the winnower's feet. So that's what's going on here. Now, once you got to this stage in the harvest, the farmers would not leave their grain unattended because out there on the threshing floor, uh, it was very susceptible to being stolen or you know, even overnight then for animals to come in and have a nice meal. So that's why Boaz was out there sleeping 
next to the grain on the threshing floor. And not just Boaz, but actually other farmers and workers would have been out there too. They've winnowed the grain, they've enjoyed a festive meal and drink, and now each one finds a comfortable place to sleep, just scattered around there about the threshing floor. So that's why Naomi tells Ruth to be extra sure that she sees where Boaz lies down, because she doesn't want Ruth to go up there and then uncover some random guy's feet in the middle of the night. Who knows what that would lead to if that were to happen. So Naomi says, note the place where he lies down. And then when he's sleeping, go and uncover his feet and lie down yourself. And then Boaz will tell you what to do from there. Now, before we go further, I think it's important to reflect here on what we see in Naomi. And I say this because as Christians, sometimes we might tend to think that the will of God is something that just is meant to unfold before us. And our job is to be passive and just wait for it. Like the new job opportunity should just show up at God's appointed time. Or that special person that we're supposed to marry will just poof, appear one day. It'll just happen. And there can be this temptation, I think, that we would hit cruise control and expect God to just bring everything to us in and out of our life. And Naomi here reminds us of this complementary principle to the providence of God. And that is the ingenuity and initiative of his people. You know, that God didn't create you to just bump along and assume that the status quo of whatever is happening is his plan. No, he gave you a mind and a heart and a brain so that you could pursue things that are not yet in place. Naomi models how to find a way where there is no road to follow. She shows us how God's actions and human actions come together and work together. You know, that God presents the opportunity, and then it's our job to take it. That's one of the major lessons of this chapter, Ruth chapter 3, that God carries out his work through those who seize the opportunity as a gift from him. And I wonder, and I want to ask you, what opportunities might be knocking on your door? You know, where and in what ways have you been sitting and waiting in perhaps ways that God did not intend. And that maybe now it's time to rise up and see what he will do. Naomi had been thinking about all these things, and now she is taking strategic action. She commends this plan to Ruth, and Ruth, for her part, isn't sitting on her hands either. She says, yes, I'll do whatever you say, and she does. Now, down at the threshing floor, things go as planned. Ruth spies from a distance. Remember, she's gotten all cleaned up and perfume and has this beautiful dress on. And she's watching from a distance. Boaz finishes his meal, and then he goes to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth waits and waits until... I don't know if he really snored, but I'm kind of picturing the scene... And there he's finally asleep. 
And so then as quiet as a mouse, Ruth sneaks over to the far end of the grain pile where Boaz is asleep. The language here is full of romantic, suggestive language as we read. And she uncovers his feet and lies down. It's just masterfully written here. Wonderful stuff. As for Ruth, they're laying down. I'm wondering to myself if she slept at all or if she just laid there quietly waiting for the next thing to happen. Whatever the case, as time passed, it was midnight. And then Boaz got startled. And the text almost seems to suggest that maybe it's because his feet got cold, like the cool night air settled in and his feet are uncovered. Whatever the case was, Boaz is startled. He awakes to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asks. Can you imagine this scene? Who are you? And this is the moment of truth. Things could go either way here. What is not so evident for you and I is just how risky this plan was. You know, there were very strict cultural guidelines for how men and women were to interact at that time. For Ruth, she's not just a woman, but she is a foreign woman who is putting herself in this kind of position with an upstanding Jewish man. It's just extremely risky. He could run her out of town or worse. And so what is Ruth going to say? You know, Naomi didn't script this part. She says, I am your servant, Ruth. It's the first time, by the way, she addresses Boaz with her actual name. And then she takes things into her own hands, uh, way beyond what Naomi had planned. She takes her own initiative and she says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And in that little line, Ruth does something huge. She invokes the Goel custom and asks Boaz to marry her. That is exactly what is happening here. Don't miss that. Still in Arab culture today, there is this tradition where a man symbolically takes a wife by throwing the corner of his garment over her. It's this symbolic gesture. And indeed, in the Bible, we see it as well, not just in Ruth, but also in Ezekiel 16. And there's also this wordplay that underscores all this that Ruth is proposing to Boaz because this word is the same word that Boaz used back in chapter 2 when he said, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It is the same exact word. Depending on the context, it means either wings or garment corner. Wings or garment corner, which, you know, if you think about that, just that picture, that seems to make sense. So not only is this a proposal, but Ruth is also asking Boaz to answer his own prayer for her from chapter two. She has come to take refuge under his wing, under the corner of his garment in marriage. It's absolutely breathtaking. Scholar Daniel Block says, here is a servant demanding that the boss marry her. 
a Moabite making the demand of an Israelite, a woman making the demand of a man, a poor person making the demand of a rich man. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And Boaz, he doesn't throw her out. He knows exactly what Ruth is saying. Not only does he view that favorably, but he knows that she is acting out of covenant faithfulness. You remember this word from the past two weeks? Chesed. Boaz says, the Lord bless you. This kindness, he says to Ruth, this chesed is even greater than the first. That's Boaz's response to Ruth. And what's he referring to? What was the first kindness? It's this reputation of Ruth that she would not leave her mother-in-law, but that she has stood by Naomi's side, leaving her family, leaving her homeland and coming to Israel. That was the first kindness. And now she's doing it again in even greater measure. Boaz says, you didn't chase after the young men, though you certainly could have. And she could have. I mean, she had options. She could have gone after any number of the eligible bachelors there in Bethlehem. Guys who were younger, who were more attractive. But no, she has set her heart on Boaz, who as a kinsman redeemer, is also able to redeem Naomi's family line. I have to see that in the story, that this is not just about Ruth and Boaz and their love story. This is about Ruth also looking out for Naomi. And it just made Boaz's heart leap to see this kind of faithfulness in this woman. And he says, don't be afraid. I will do whatever it takes. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, in your own Bible reading, do you recognize that phrase, woman of noble character? It appears one other place in all of Scripture, and that's the book of Proverbs. In the Hebrew order of the Old Testament, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. So Proverbs 31 says, a wife of noble character, who can find? And then the Bible introduces us to Ruth. This is a woman of noble character. For our students and our young adults and those who are dating, there is a priceless lesson in this story, isn't there? It's not hard to understand or to draw out, but it can be, it can be hard to do, to put this into practice. And the idea is this, that the highest item on your priority list should not be their looks or their sense of humor, or their financial status, or how special they make you feel. No, it should be their character. And above all, their chesed, faithful love for Christ. It's the most attractive thing that you could ever find. And the Bible commends you, don't settle for anything less than that. Ruth didn't settle Boaz didn't settle. They loved the Lord first. That's what we see throughout this book. And then their love for each other grew from that. We're almost done with the story for today. Actually, we could almost think we are done with the story. All that's left is wedding bells, except there is this one last gut-wrenching twist that happens. Boaz, as he's responding to her, says, 
I am your kinsman redeemer, but there is another relative who is actually more closely related than I. And we think, oh no, we were so close and yet something might still come in the way of this great love story. But Boaz is a man of integrity. He says to Ruth, if he wants to redeem you, let him redeem you. But if he doesn't, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And then the last thing that he says, he says, lie here till morning. He didn't want her trying to go off through the night. That's where we left off. And the Hebrew makes it clear, by the way, that they were not intimate that night. Not only would that not square with their covenant-keeping character that we've come to know, but the Hebrew wording here also underlines it. And yet we'd point out not that that was necessarily easy. I mean, this is essentially a profession of love and this proposal that happened and Ruth's laying down there all perfumed and pretty and Boaz is looking up at the night sky with stars in his eyes. And yet they show these wonderful attributes of self-control and restraint. And if I were to speak to our young people again, I would say to you, follow their example and wait. And I'm going to be discreet because we have people of all ages who are part of our worship time together. So I'll be discreet, but wait for marriage. And you know what I mean. Wait. In American culture, It is just so often not the way things roll anymore. I mean, people might look at you sideways if they hear that this would be your idea, right? That this is the most archaic, old-fashioned, out-of-date notion that there could possibly be. But I am telling you that the Bible knows what it's talking about. The creator of physical intimacy knows exactly what he is talking about. And so I urge you to wait like Ruth. And like Boaz. And if you haven't, if you haven't, and if it's too late and you think you have blown it, then I want to remind you that there is a God who is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you can give him the broken pieces of what's happened in a contrite heart, and he can put it back together and make all things new. So time is nearly up in the portion we didn't read in our scripture reading. Ruth wakes up early in the morning, you know, when it's still pretty dark out before you can recognize anybody. And Boaz points out, he says, yes, it would be good if no one knew that a woman came down to the threshing floor. You know, you can just see they're being careful to avoid any appearance of evil or compromise. You can only imagine how The rumor mill in in this small town of Bethlehem would just fire up and go wild if they knew that Ruth had been out at the threshing floor. It could gum up the whole plan as Boaz goes to sort things out. So she's heading off very early in the morning. But before she leaves, Boaz says, here, it would not be right to send you back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And he fills her shawl. And this is like a big head-to-toe kind of shawl. He fills it with six full measures of barley. And if you know something about numbers in the Bible, you know that seven is a significant number. It means complete or whole or finished. And so what does six mean? Well, six means we're not quite finished yet. 
there is still something left to do. And so I hope that you'll come back next week as we pick up the final chapter in this wonderful story of redemption. Remember what we said last week. I'll say this in closing. That the story of Ruth and Boaz is a story that's not just this great love story, but it foreshadows Christ and his redeeming love for us. There is a greater Boaz who bought us back, who redeemed us from sin and death, removing our shame, forgiving our debt, and setting us free in a brand new life with him. And so I wonder, have you laid down at his feet yet? The feet of your Redeemer. Have you taken refuge under his wings? I hope you have. But if you haven't, then it's time to take action. It's time to draw near to his love. Let's close in prayer together. Lord Jesus, you are our Redeemer. You invite us into your arms of mercy. And I pray for each one who is listening now that we will come to you, that we will lie down at your feet and find rest from every sin and sorrow and false lover that would ever lure us away from you. Lord, to you be the highest honor and praise. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.